Hey, welcome to Being Creative. My name is Rick Leaf, as you know, and I'm the host of this show. And today, I want to talk about things I learned while sitting at the big drum. Today's episode is going to be one wildly meandering journey of rabbit trails and interconnecting storylines that periodically have something to do with everything. Maybe at times nothing. But by this point, I'm sure that's what you've come to expect and possibly even enjoy, which is why I find it personally so easy to admit. story time. I think everybody does, no matter how old or how young we are. Um, Stories are so great. Such a great way to find your place in a time and space um, where you can share what you've learned, what you're feeling, what you didn't learn. I love just the whole nature of, you know, how Bob Haverlook, that elder back in treaty one said to me so many years ago after coming to one of my concerts where I was uh, um, over explaining everything and he was just like you know what Rick Uh, be a storyteller don't be a preacher a preacher doesn't trust his audience or her audience to make the necessary connections but a a storyteller does and I loved that little piece of in um, instruction advice that I got from Bob so many years ago and I've held on to it to this point and I've certainly found a thread through my own life and the people that have had probably the most impact on me have been um yeah, those, those storytellers, those people that would put uh, what they have to say into context. So I want to start this episode with some stories from my time sitting at the big drum. Uh, big drum meaning a powwow drum. It was called Standing Nation. It was an Anishinaabe drum that was based out of the First People's House at the University of Victoria here in Lekwungen, uh, which is the traditional territory of the Songhees and Esquimalt Nations. Rob Spade was the drum keeper at the time from Edmonton First Nation up in northern Ontario. His partner was here getting her uh, PhD at the university, and he was a drum keeper. And by the time I had the invitation to come out one week, um, he had followed all the protocols of um, getting permission and then connecting with the elders in the tr- in the territory here and 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 going through all of the process of opening the drum and so it was already going by the time I sat down and there were drummers from all sorts of different nations and because it was a a teaching drum it was actually open to um, anyone who wanted to come. And Rob told this wonderful story uh, a number of times sitting around the drum, you know, that how times change and how his, at the time of his uh, grandfather, um, in his day, that they weren't allowed to practice their ceremonies and their songs. They had to do it um, in secret because if they were found, the authorities would take their, you know, smash their drums, smash their pipes. Uh, he said his grandfather had been uh, dragged behind uh, a cop car. That was, you know, the era of that generation. He said, you know, his father's 
um, generation, it was different. They were able to practice their ceremonies and sing their songs in public. And they would share those um, stories and teachings and songs with uh, other nations. Um, but not, you know, non-Indigenous communities. And he said when he was leaving his community, he went to his elders and he said, you know, I feel like the world is in such a place that anybody who wants to come together to work together to make the world a better place, we need, we need to all come together. Do I have your permission to uh, share our teachings and our songs and, and whatever with anybody who wants to learn? And they gave him that freedom and uh, to go do that. Um, which is why I had the opportunity to sit at this drum. I had no right to be there um, other than Rob had worked through all of that kind of relational and, uh, and structural stuff um, to prepare that place for anybody who wanted to sit there. And so, uh, boy, it was the highlight of my life. I was able to sit there for two years while uh, Rob was the drum keeper and when he left. Um, he chose to leave that drum open and we drummed for another two or three years. So it was this real impactful chunk of time that I sat around the drum week after week and, and uh, month after month singing with these real legends. Uh, some, of the, some of my favorite memories of being here in Lekwungen. Now, there was a couple funny stories that I want to share with you. Um, one, there was a guy uh, who came periodically to the drum. He was um, from a different nation. And uh, he would tell these really interesting stories. And by interesting, I mean, if you know when you're sitting there and you're like, ah, there's a... There's just an undercurrent to this story that makes it maybe feel like some of it's not real or, or some of it's been exaggerated or maybe the whole thing. It, 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 it leaves you with this feeling. And so this guy was telling the story one night. Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, the grandmothers, you know, they prophesied this over me and the grandfathers, they prophesied that. And he went on and on and on about all his all the the incredible miraculous stuff he was going to do in the world and how the grandmothers had prophesied this and the grandfathers that and nobody offered any competing narrative nobody questioned anything or asked for anything we just sat there and and it was maybe a week later um sitting at the drum and our drum keeper rob just said it's you know out of the blue he was like you know if people tell you stories, and in the stories they're talking about, you know, the grandmothers and the grandfathers, he's like, you should ask them, uh, what are their names? Because real people have names. So if they're like, oh, the grandmother said this, oh, the grandfathers, yeah, what were their names? And he never <laughs> said he was referring to that guy's story. Uh, that guy's story was still ringing in my head, at least from a week or two previous. So I, I feel like it was related. But that has stuck with me because we live in a time right now, um, certainly online, where everybody's just claiming everything, anything. The, the story's online. And so you'll have somebody, um, they'll just be com being completely racist and bigoted or homophobic or whatever. And they'll be like, oh yeah, but I got like, you know, I got lots of friends that are, you know, people of color. I got lots of, you know, friends from the LGBTQ community. And it's like, really? What are their names? Because real people 
have names. And I hear this all the time. I remember actually years ago, I was watching, I'm pretty sure it was Obama, and he was on the campaign trail. And it was just a news clip that, again, this is so funny, it's got to be 10, 15 years ago. I don't know how long ago it was, but uh, I just remember, he's like, uh, I just met, you know, he's on the campaign trail. And he's like, uh, I, I think he was in Iowa or something. I don't know what they do in Iowa. Do they grow corn? Let's say they grow corn in Iowa. I don't know. And he's like, I just met with uh, Bob and Betty, you know, fourth generation corn farmers here in Iowa. And they said they're concerned about shrinking wages, inflation, Medicare, and support for the middle class, which <laughs> miraculously happened to be every single party position of the Democratic, you know, party or whatever. <laughs> but I thought even at the time, uh, there was an element to naming these people. You can't just say, I met with some fourth generation corn farmers here in Iowa. It's like real people have names. And if you're trying to tell a story that's believable, well, you got to give the people in your story names. But you also can't like pick like the craziest names that, you know, people can't find. So I'm pretty sure that they pick, you know, John and Sue. I'm sure that there are like, there would be a John and Sue somewhere that would be fourth generation corn farmers. So if somebody really did their due diligence and tried to dig these people up, they might be able to find them. Now they might say, oh, I never talked to a bomb or whatever. But, you know, you get the point. Real people have names. And in the context of all of these conversations and the claims that people make these days, um, I think that's really a valuable thing. What, what is the person's name? Because real people have names. So that was, uh, that was a great moment. And it's uh, one of those things that stuck with me. But that was only one of the things. There were, uh, there was, there were more lessons learned through more stories. So, same drummer that was telling those stories. He wasn't a regular at the drum. So it wasn't like I saw him. There would be months you wouldn't see him. And uh, most of the time, like uh, this drum, the Standing Nation was uh, based out of the First People's House at the university. So when university was on, there would uh, be lots of students who would come to the drum sometimes for a week or two and then they'd leave other times they'd be regulars but you know the the attendance around the drum would often have a lot to do with you know school but there was all there was a number of us who weren't in university and we would just drum throughout the year and so certainly um for the four months of summer when university was out there wouldn't be any of those extra students. It would just be the locals who would be coming out. And you kind of got used to just showing up on a Wednesday night in the summer. Nobody's around on campus. Nobody's at the first people house. We let ourselves in. We set up the drum. We're all by ourselves, maybe six or eight or ten of us. And that's it. But then, you know, if you weren't really paying attention to the calendar, all of a sudden you'd show up, you know, in September 
and you didn't and then the, the campus is full of people there's thousands of people everywhere and the uh, i remember walking in one night and the first people's house was full just packed to the uh every seat and and the drummers were all there and i i kind of slid in and sat down and said well what is going on <laughs> they're like well it's university's opening and we're we're opening the drum. They're opening the first people's house for the year, and uh, we're drumming at this big event. And I, I had no idea. Well, one of the nights we would have drum feasts, uh, and this was um, one of those nights where it was a drum feast, and so there was a, a lot of extra people at the the first people's house, and there was a big, you know, um, potluck kind of meal. Everybody brought stuff, and it was really great. And and this drummer, same guy shows up haven't seen him for months and months and months and he slides in now there's a dynamic that was around that particular drum normally you'd have a a drum keeper a drum leader and they're leading all the songs they're calling um what songs they're saying what songs we're gonna do like when rob was there he would say what songs we're gonna sing next um there would be a lead line for most songs that you would, uh, the structure of the song would come around to this lead line and you would usually sing at least four leads, if not more. And uh, either he would say before the drum started, the song started, uh, you, 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 and you. Um, I want you to sing lead when it comes around. Or while the drum, while you were drumming and you were coming up to that part of the song, he would, you know, with one hand just kind of, you know, very nonchalantly uh, just kind of point at you. Do you want it? And if you nodded your head, yeah, I'll, I'll take the lead. You know, you'd sing it when it came time. And if you didn't want to, you could just kind of shake your head. And uh, he would just point at the next person and it would go around. So after Rob left, we were taking turns um, leading different songs. And so this one particular song, um, one of the drummers, Jessica, was leading it. But this drummer... This guy who showed up, he was probably a little bit, uh, <laughs> I wanted to say sexist, but I don't really know. But he was looking at me like I was in charge of stuff. And I wasn't leading that song, so it wasn't up to me. And Jessica had already called who was going to sing leads on this song. And we're coming around, and it's coming around to this guy. And he looks at me, and he points to himself, like I'm taking the next lead. And I already know that Jessica's called who the leads are going to be for this song. And he hasn't paid any attention to that. And it's pretty embarrassing if two people start singing the lead at the same time. So I want to save everybody the embarrassment of that happening with this full house. So I just kind of shake my head uh, like, don't do that. You know, I don't say nothing. Just shake my head. Wow. He was so pissed off when that song ended. That was the only song. Uh, that was the last song we were going to sing at that moment anyway. But he just got up and he stormed off and he's just leaving. And I'm like, I kind of always have thought, at least up until that point, and this story kind of changed my perspective too. Um, I wasn't in charge and I wanted to let him know I wasn't in charge and I wasn't trying to shut him down because I wasn't leading the song. I was just going to try to explain what happened. Well, I don't manage to catch up to him till the lobby till the entrance way and i'm like hey man seriously just like give a sec what let's just talk and he's so mad and i don't have anybody in my life who fights unfair do you know what i mean by that like there are people in my life who will um will disagree 
and we'll disagree about ideology, about methodology, about what's best in this moment, about what's, you know, that kind of stuff. And But I don't mean even fighting. I'm just like, you can get into arguments or, or long-ranging discussions about, you know, I think it's better this way and that way, whatever. But this, uh, I don't have anybody who just like brings up just starts throwing things at you, trying to assassinate your character or trying to uh, just say hurtful, mean things that will like shut you down or, or like really hurt you or whatever. But the, this guy was doing that just immediately. And uh, so he said a bunch of really horrible things and he blasted out the door it's gone. So I come back and the feast carries on and everybody's having a great night. We sing some more songs at the end and we get into the back room at the end of that night. And I just wanted the drummers from Standing Nation, I wanted them to all know what had happened out there in that conversation because this guy was periodically coming uh, in and out. And uh, I tell the story, this is what I said, and this is what he said, and whatever, whatever. And one of the drummers, um, I wish I could remember what nation he was from. Uh, he said, you know, where I'm from, um, I was taught, we have a teaching where I'm from, that uh, people who turn their backs on the drum uh, turn their back on life. They turn their back on moving forward. They turn their back on conversation. They turn their back on community. And in a sense, uh, when you do that, like you're dead. There's no life in that moment. There's no um, possible way for restitution or reconciliation, everything. You've turned your back, and on, on all of those things, uh, you're just viewed as if you're dead. And until if you're going to turn back into all of that stuff and face that relationship and face that con those conversations, whatever, then you're alive, right? And, I, oh, man, I loved that. There was... Uh, there was just something about the simplicity of not running after somebody who is not remotely interested or invested in relationship or community or any of that. So I love that. I love that story. I love that I learned that um, that night just from this young drummer who shared that. And you know what? There's there's something that was often said around the drum, you know, because there would be drummers from so many different nations. And, uh, and let's say, for example, um, where this Anishinaabe drum, Rob would say, you know, if we're not, if we're at a powwow or something and we're drumming and you're going to get up and leave, don't, um, don't put your stick that you play the drum with. Don't, don't set that on the, the, the top of the drum on the skin of the drum. You'd lean it up against the drum. And somebody else would say, where I'm from, you'd never let your stick touch the ground. You're supposed to put it on the, on the top, leave it there. And Rob would always just say, yeah, there's many ways. There's many ways. You know, thinking about, again, the world that we live in, um, anywhere online in particular, but just it's even invading our physical spaces in this world. It's like, it's my way or you're wrong. You know, that, that ideology, that thing where it's like, it's, uh, there's no room for any difference. There's no room for any other perspective. It's like everybody online, um, and increasingly 
in my interactions just day by day. It feels like everybody's just turning their back on communication, on conversations, on figuring stuff out together. And it's like uh, you can't chase the person down. You can't make somebody who's dead to that conversation or to your community or relationship um, be alive if they're not choosing that. There's many ways. And you know what? I've heard that expression. I heard it again uh, years later. There was a, uh, a Megida here in Victoria named Shoshana. She's a, an ordained Jewish storyteller. And uh, she asked if I would come to a place where she was um, telling a story when I'm performing and if I would film it so she would have like a little video um, thing that she could use to apply to festivals and different things that she might want to use for booking. So I went to this synagogue. Um, we showed up with our cameras and our recording equipment to capture this night. And, you know, she hadn't even started. There was some a band playing at first, and this was happening, and that was happening. And then I was just getting it set, and, you know, getting set up. She was just starting. She walked in, and and the... The, the sun was setting, and it's a two-story building. And on the second floor, there's all these big, massive stained glass windows, and they're all blue, and this light that was pouring through as the sun was setting through these windows, all this blue lights pouring through there. and and uh, but she So she just says, um, and this wasn't even part of her set yet, she's just like, hey, everybody, look up at those um, stained glass windows. She's like, um, I've heard a lot of reasons why they're like that but the one i like the best is that you know the blue it reminds us of the ocean and the ocean reminds us of the sky and the sky reminds us of heaven and heaven reminds us that you know god's there no matter what kind of a day you've had or whatever that's brought you here that there's just this um you know presence kind of whatever the point was over top of everything that's happening whatever's brought you here i'm kind of glad you're here but it was that phrase i've heard a lot of stories about why they're like that but the one i like best is and i love that because it wasn't right or it was wrong if you were sitting there in the audience and you'd heard a different story and you liked that story you weren't um excluded and i wouldn't think that you would feel threatened or anything it was just this freedom to yeah be part of this ongoing conversation so i love those two things and those two stories uh but there was more because yeah i was raised in a environment i need to tell you about Probably one of the reasons I love these stories about, you know, there's many ways and uh, just letting someone go who turns their back on the conversation, whatever. Because I was raised in a really super religious environment and uh, it, it took me years as a young man to extricate myself. Years, horrible, agonizing years. Um, you know, we often talk about throwing somebody under the bus. You've heard that expression. Well, I think religion deserves to be thrown under the bus. Uh, and I throw it under as many buses as I can, as often as I can. The, 
religion being those rules and laws and regulations that are used to govern behavior. You know, religion isn't about faith or peace or joy. It's about control, and it's fueling the wars raging around the world and around us online every single day. So the absence of that um, saying, there are many ways, the absence of real people having real conversations. That's what I'm picking up um, in this uh, overly kind of religious world. And I wanted, I, I came across the other night I was reading, and it was a study about how much info online is fake and uh, generated by AI. And I'm just going to pull it up here. So... A, it's the title was a huge proportion of internet is AI generated slime researchers find um, the internet's steady fall into the AI garbled dumpster continues as Vice reports a recent study conducted by researchers at Amazon Web Services AWS AI Lab found that a shocking amount of the web is already made up of poor quality AI-generated and translated content. So I'm just going to read a little bit more. The paper is yet to be peer-reviewed, but shocking feels like the right word. According to the study, over half, specifically 57% of all the sentences on the internet have been translated into two or more other languages. The poor quality and staggering scale of these translations suggests that large language model, or you might have seen LLM, powered AI models were used to both create and translate the material. The phenomenon is especially prominent in lower resource languages or languages with less readily available data to, uh, with which to more effectively train AI models. The um, another article, and who wrote this one? This was in The Guardian. It says nearly 50 news websites are AI generated. A study says, would I be able to tell? A tour of the sites featuring fake facts and odd wording left me wondering what was real. Here, little tiny story. Breaking news. This is all part of the article. Breaking news from celebritiesdeaths.com says the president is dead. <laughs> At least that's what the highly reliable website informed its readers last month under the no-nonsense headline Biden dead, Harris acting president, address 9 a.m. Eastern time. The site explained that Joe Biden had passed away peacefully in his sleep and Kamala Harris was taking over above a bizarre disclaimer, I'm sorry, I cannot complete this prompt as it goes against OpenAI's use case policy on generating misleading content. CelebritiesDeaths.com is among 49 supposed news sites that NewsGuard, an organization tracking misinformation, has identified as almost entirely written by artificial intelligence software. The sites publish up to hundreds of articles daily, according to the report. Much of that material containing signs of AI-generated content, including bland language, repetitive phrases, false claims, blah, blah, blah. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, I saw an ad 
um, I wish I, I, I wish I, you know, at least screenshot it. But it said, if you're reading something online and it pisses you off, riles you up and gives you an emotional response, that should be your first red flag that what you're reading may not be true. Because um, Chalmuth Palamateo, I know I've talked about him before. He was one of the execs at uh, Facebook way back in the early days. He left and has been very public about how he regrets ever being part of it. He's done TED Talks and everything. And he would say, you know, uh, Facebook in particular, he was talking about, he was like, you know, it's not broken. It's working exactly like we intended it to. We studied how to drive engagement and inspiration and education and humor and nothing drove engagement like rage. If we could make you mad, that's when you'd start interacting with that content. You'd start sharing it. You'd start reacting to it. And that would keep you on the platform longer. And it was all about ad revenue. And that's the point. So interestingly enough, I don't care. To me, this doesn't have anything to do with where you fit on the political or religious spectrum or, or in, in any other way of how you identify. If you're reading something online and it immediately gets you mad, what a great first red flag that should go up there. You're like, hey, this might not be true. And I, I would attest to this because, um, you know, in the last three, four years or whatever, however long the pandemic and COVID and everything else has been going on and all of this debate around vaccines and everything else and the world that we now live in. And I remember trying to do my own <laughs> research. Have you ever tried to read a scientific study, like an actual medical scientific study, it is so confusing. It is so boring. Like medical studies, like it's it's incomprehensible. You're if you're not a scientist or a doctor, the language, the methodology, it's tedious and it's hard work. They, there's no smoking guns. They're not like. Ah, uh, we tested this and conclusively it proves that. They're like, well, we've only tested a million people. So we're barely getting started. We need to run, you know, dozens of more tests, having millions of more people so we can extrapolate all of the results and put them against this and do that and and all of this kind of stuff and and, and then have the peer reviewed kind of process and and every and it's like if you go on to a, a line like grifters and and that are selling their supplements and whatever, man, they can get you riled up and pissed off in seconds and make the sa the snake oil that they're selling so compelling. Like you're sold. That's it. You you don't you don't have a degree. You've never thought about this. You couldn't explain anything about. But you know that this is true because you know that other guy. He's an idiot. That's what we're up against. We're up against people who aren't real, foisting arguments and information on us that isn't real from websites that aren't true because they're written by, shoddily written by AI. But if you're so busy sharing whatever the thing is that makes you mad, man, you don't have time to verify anything. You don't have time to be present in a conversation, to listen to somebody. There's no, there ain't no, <laughs> nobody got time for that. 
There was um, a guy, literally, I don't even remember who he was. In the last few years, I, I've had a couple business coaches that have, uh, have been influential in, in a number of really positive ways for me. And this one business coach uh, had this saying, you know, everything you create and post online should add value to somebody's life. And uh, of course, he's saying it in context of your business and providing value for your clients and your customers. But I don't see any reason why we shouldn't apply this to all of us all the time in everything. I know I was as guilty as anybody, probably more guilty than anybody listening to the idea back in the day when I first started adopting, particularly Facebook, and what was that, 2005 or six, whatever. You know, I'm at the height of touring as an artist, and every time I would do a show and go back to my hotel room, I'd wake up in the morning, or, or even before I even got to bed, people would be um, sending friend requests on Facebook. And I told myself, hey, this is going to be great. For, for my business, it's going to be great for, uh, for selling my music and getting in touch with my fans and developing that fan base and really making a career. Anyways, um, I, I was sharing everything, every stray thought and idea, every irreverent kind of thought and joke. And, and that was, you know, I don't know if you even were, if you were around or if you would have been part of this, but that was where you started seeing how horrible this actually was they they start taking your you know your your parents and then your coworkers and your friends and your high school friends and your buddies and your partner and your kids and you start and your aunts and your uncles and your religion your pastor and your priest and everybody is all in the same room with you and that was when you realized you know I actually have different filters at different times for who I'm talking with. I don't talk with my high school friends the same way I would with the priest or, you know, I'm not, not the same person at work that I am at home. But here, Facebook put us all together in this one common room. And man, for somebody like me, it was daily train wrecks. Nobody got the sense of humor. Or if they did, they found it super offensive and... <laughs> So by the time I hear this guy saying, you know what? Everything you create and post should add value to somebody's life. And certainly I was an oversharer for years. Um, but then I started realizing I don't want to share my whole entire life. And I don't really care about most things that most people are sharing. And I, I got this idea, like, it should add value. And I, I thought, oh, that's really great. I, I kind of probably heard that. I was mulling it over. I met somebody in the city here for having a coffee and as we're just hanging out chatting I'm like yeah I tell him this whole story <laughs> like yeah this guy said you know everything you create and post should like add value to somebody's life and he looks at me and pauses for a second he's like well that that doesn't seem possible <laughs> or that doesn't seem realistic <laughs> I think it's totally realistic what I mean what adds value Making somebody chuckle, making somebody laugh, showing something uh, something of beauty, showing something inspiring or something honest, which would include struggles or pain, uh, questions, concerns. I mean, 
all of these things can or could add value to somebody's life if we were real people sharing real stories and experiences with other real people and not just getting riled up and not just reacting and not turning our back on conversations it could be amazing. I've been really preoccupied recently with releasing the Songs for Schools project. Uh, for the last, oh gosh, it's got to be uh, over 10 years, 15 years, I don't know. Um, I started off going into schools um, many years ago, in part because, you know, I... Back in 2009 and 10, our family, we sold our house in Winnipeg so we could spend a year traveling around the world um, as a family. And when we got back, we moved to the West Coast of Canada. And in that year, it was absolutely amazing. I, I'd made my living for a decade probably at that point um, as a musician, as an independent musician. So as a songwriter and touring, playing my own songs. And I got back after that year and I thought, okay, I'll just get back at touring. And oh, easily 80% of the promoters that I worked with were no longer in the business. Probably 80% of the venues that I had been performing at when I would set up my tours were no longer booking live original music. Uh, every, I don't know what happened in that kind of pivotal time, but something definitely happened. And I was kind of freaking out because I'm like, how am I supposed to make a living? What am I going to do? And I started going into schools and uh, remember thinking, well, there's a, <laughs> there's a turnover of, uh, you know, clientele every year. It should make whatever I'm doing um, relevant. And it, be, it was this process, mostly started off doing slam poetry, teaching slam poetry. And there was this one um, school that was booking me. I'd been at Central School for, I believe, two years at this point. Uh, they would book me for a, a week uh, each time to come in and teach slam poetry to all of their classes. And then on Friday, we'd work up to this poetry slam and all the students would get up and perform. And it was really great. And I, I'm booked for the third year to do that. And I'm calling up to that principal saying, uh, hey, just, you know, it's Thursday or whatever. And I'm like, I, my flight's on Friday or my flight's on Sunday. I'm going to arrive, get my rental car. I'll be there. See you on Monday morning. Okay, great, Rick. That's awesome. Okay. And then I said, you still want to do slam poetry? And the principal's like, whoa, why? What else do you do? I'm like, well, I do songwriting. I do video production. You know, and she's like, could you write a song that involved all 360 students in the school and create a video of the process in the week? Now I need to make rent. <laughs> so I, I was just like, oh yeah, absolutely. No problem. I got it. So I throw in my cameras along with my guitar and I get on the plane. I haven't even thought this through at all. And it is literally not until Monday morning at eight o'clock or whatever that I'm walking up to the school and I, all these little dudes with their backpacks and lunch boxes and, and the, they're out in the playground and I'm like, whoa, what did I agree to? 
I was gonna. I'm gonna what involve 360 kids in the process of writing a song? So I walk into the school with a big smile on my face, just freaking out inside, going, "What have I done?" And they're like, "Rick, there's so many different classes that we've doubled them up, and we've put you in this area, and you're gonna get them for like half an hour at a time, and there's like, you know, whatever there are." And boy, flying by the seat of your pants. Uh, Something is the, the, what is it? Is the mother of invention? Necessity? Yeah, that whole thing. I just figured it out and walked around and there was this sign in the hallway that said, if you change your words, you can change your mindset. And I took a picture of that and I was like, you know, mindset is a clunky word to use in a song. But I was like, oh, if you change your words, you could change the world. And that became this idea. And I'd been at some other school where um, somebody had said something like uh, they used iMessages. And they would get these kids to be like, use an iMessage to communicate. I feel safe here. I like my friends. I, you know, whatever. iMessages. And so I said to the principal, could we get a big sheet of paper and cover this whole wall here? And could we have all of the different students think about, you know, iMessages? and then write them like graffiti. And I'm gonna film them writing their iMessage on the wall. And I used a bunch of their iMessages for inspiration for lyrics and we worked on lyrics. And then it's like, how could we tell this story about you know, changing your words and changing the world? And, and we created this whole song um, in, on the fly, just by the seat of my pants. And by the time we got into the gym on Friday, this idea, I was way too young for Soul Train. I've just seen these clips of Soul Train from the 70s on YouTube where the, you know, people at the end of the show, they're all dancing all funky in their big bell bottoms and they're whatever uh, up this aisle as, as other dancers are on either side of them. And I was like, hey, we should do that. Let's line up the kids. Like, let's get the kids in the gym sitting on the floor with a big center aisle and let's have some a student or two from each class, you know, in advance that, you know, wants to dance up this thing and we'll film them dancing. And so we're singing this song and it is deafeningly loud in this school. It was a, it was a banger of a tune. Um, and we're, we're playing and then I would get these kids dancing in between. I think we recorded the song three different times uh, so that I could have three different audio versions to choose from. And I had about two or three cameras uh, filming each different time so that when I was going to come to the point of using footage to making this video, I'd have, it was like there was nine cameras in the room, you know, filming all sorts of different things. And uh, the pr vice principal runs up to me at one point and he's like, Rick, should the teachers, you know, dance up the middle aisle too? And I'm like, of course they should. And so in one of the takes, the teachers, a number of the teachers danced up there and the kids were loving it. And it was absolutely amazing. And all of that happened just because uh, I had said to this principal, do you still want to do slam poetry? And she's like, what else do you do? Now, over the years, I still do lots of slam poetry and I've done so many songs and it's become basically what I do. And so the songs for schools, I, I've narrowed down the songs that I've written in schools to the best 50 songs so that I could have five volumes um, 
of songs if this works. So I went and we professionally recorded the first 10. And then I was like, how do teachers, what have they told me they like or, or what do I know from my times in schools that, that kids like? And of course, we all love stories, as I said at the beginning of this episode. And I was like, we all love stories, particularly little primary age students. They're really in that time. They, they had listened to the same story. You've, you probably had this experience. You read a story to a little kid, and as soon as you finish the book, they're like, read it again. You're like, you don't want another one? No, I want to read it again. Or if your kid likes a song, uh, a book, uh, there's an age where they would want you to read that book every single night at bedtime, you know, over and over and over again. So I was like, well, you know what? I should make a video for the songs. I have 10 songs. I should make a video for each song that actually explains who was I with when I wrote this? Where was I? What was inspiring um, the story behind this? Was, was there any funny things that happened in that um, making of that song, recording of that song that would make the song itself more relevant, add greater connection or understanding to the lyrics. And so we did. We made 10 videos, story behind the song. Well, then if a class is actually going to use the song and you're going to, I'm not going to be there to teach it to them. When I go into a school, I grab chart paper on my first morning. I write out the lyrics for about 10 songs and just drag them with me from class to class and use magnets to put them up on the whiteboard. And I'm playing my guitar and we're singing these songs while we're working on a new song with that school. So I was like, well, what's the digital version of that? Making a lyric video. So we make a lyric video, 10 lyric videos for each one of these songs so that a teacher, if they wanted to play one of those songs, just click on this video and play it. The lyrics come up, the music comes up that we've recorded. Um, easy to use. Well, I was in one school where the music teacher, uh, I've been in that school a few times, and she said, Rick, you know, I've never actually had an opportunity to sit in any of your sessions until this year. And I see how much the kids are loving the songs that they're singing with you. And she's like, if there was ever a way, like if you ever had lyric and chord charts or music or charts or anything for these songs, I would love to know about it because uh, I'm always looking for music that I could use to teach the kids. So I was like, well, I don't read music like millions of musicians in this world, but I do like many self-taught and pop and rock uh, musicians know have a process for how to learn songs. You take the lyric charts, typically, you write in the chords over those lyrics where the chord change happens. So if it's C, F, G, whatever, you need to know how to make the shape. If you're playing guitar or ukulele or whatever, uh, you need to know the shape of that chord like so that you know I'm playing a G here, I'm playing a C here, this is how I play an F. Um, but so I was like, you know what? I could do that for these students. And I could, a lot of schools have ukuleles. So we made 10 tutorial videos for each one of these songs. That's me showing the students. And I provided also charts, lyric and chord charts that a teacher could print out and have for each student. So it's like, let's learn how to play this song on the ukulele. Here's the three chords you need to learn. Here's how you play them. Here's how they fit in the song. So we made, uh, so anyways, we've got 10 story behind the songs. Then we got 10 lyric videos. Then we got 10 um, tutorial videos. And then each one of these songs 
has the live version on YouTube from when it was recorded and performed with the school. So there's these bonus live albums. So 40 videos and 10 songs and charts. And then one of the teachers, one of the principals in the years um, had called me up and said, hey, we did a slideshow for our grade six class for their grads moving on to middle school. And we used the song that they were part of recording with you do we have your permission to use that song? Because we would like to put this video online. And I'm like, of course. So we just included uh, a copyright license that would allow schools to use any of these 10 songs for any projects that they might want to do. So super tons of this value. This is what I've been consumed with for months, particularly 2024 has been all about trying to connect with schools to let them know about this product, this project. And in the process, I was asking for some principals to give me a review. Would you give me a review or a recommendation? And I, I'm not reading this to toot my own horn. I'll tell you why I wanted to share this. This uh, principal, Sheldon uh, Steele, was the principal for Doc Kearney Middle School. And he wrote, as a principal, I never know what, what they're going to say, right? And he writes, as a principal and educator for 32 years, I can honestly say Rick Leaf is one of the best I've ever worked with in the school setting. His unique strength to draw out the introvert and get them to create masterpieces of slam poetry is amazing. His skill to promote the arts and ability to reach all ages allows him to get the best out of all students. If you have a chance to bring him to your school, please do not hesitate as it will be rewarding for all involved. Do you know why that is? I, I read this when he, when he sent it to me and I, I kind of sat there because I was like, he is highlighting the strength of storytelling. And as I read it, I knew why I have that strength to draw out from the introvert because my message when I go in is like, I am not here to teach you metaphors and similes and alliteration. I'm here because I'm an author. And I believe you are too. And I say this to you listening. You're an author as well. We are all authors of our own story. And you might be in a chapter of your story that's all about success and everything's working out. You got friends. You maybe, you know, you had your first crush. You told them that you like them. They like you back. Maybe you tried out for the team and you made it and it's awesome. And you're having a great year or whatever the adult version of all this is. But you might be sitting beside somebody and they told their crush they liked them and it wasn't how the crush felt. <laughs> they don't have friends around them. They tried out for the team and they didn't make it. And that is your chapter that you're in of your story. And every chapter that we have is valuable to us. And sharing that chapter that we're in is valuable, not just for us, but for those people who are around us. Like, I think the way I look at it is maybe many of us could be inspired in some way by the success of others. But we can relate to pain and discouragement and disappointment and struggle. 
And when, even if you have a great set of friends who are around you, it is not always clear or easy to know, when can I share this? How can I share this? How do I bring up the fact that I'm so depressed and I'm so discouraged? And I remember one uh, boy was sitting there in middle school and everybody's in the writing part of the session and he's just sitting there spacing out, which is fine. You're totally welcome to do that in my sessions. But I just crouched down beside him and I'm like, do you got anything, anything at all? And he's like, nah, I can't do this. I'm like, really? Why? He's like, I, I can't, I, I, I don't do poetry. I don't like mushy romantic crap. And I'm like, good, me neither. <laughs> Why would you write mushy romantic crap? And, uh, and he said, um, well, and so then anyways, we talked a little bit and then he, he, he started writing. So I left him alone. I think it was the next session. I'm wandering around and, and now it's the part where people are starting to share their slams out loud. You know, they're performing in class and I, I, kind of crouched down beside him. I'm like, are you thinking of reading? And he's like, no. I'm like, why not? He's like, this is, this is too depressing. And nobody's really listening to us, but I say it loud enough so that they can, the class can hear me. And I'm like, depressing. Like I said, look around. You, you don't think that people in this class know what it's like to be depressed? <laughs> And I said it loud enough because, you know, there's some students that are, they're going to jump on that. And they're like, I, I'm depressed right now. Like, <laughs> I'm always depressed. Which, that the point is, we give ourselves these rules that say, oh, this isn't, I'm not allowed to talk about this. I'm not allowed to share this. I'm not allowed to post this. It's too real. It's too, it's too, Yeah. You know what? If you if you are in the I'm I'm not saying you should post anything online, but you know this idea why is this AI garbage that they're talking about in this one study? Why is a huge proportion of this like slime AI slime because it's not real. It's not the person doesn't have a real name. It's not a real person with a real name. They're not actually facing into a conversation. And what they're saying isn't real. It is there to elicit rage and an emotional response from you so you will spend more time on the platform generating ad revenue for whoever's involved. You weigh that against the idea that your story is important, that you are important, that what you're going through is valuable, and all you have to do is face a conversation with another human being and share it and you will have created and shared something with them that adds value to their life. Honesty. Whether it's sad or depressing or whatever, discouraged. And that is what I realized this principle was saying. Rick's strength is to get people to realize, you know why it's masterpieces? Why he says he can draw the introvert out and get them to create masterpieces. They're creating something real. They're sharing what they really feel. And it is a masterpiece. It does make me cry sometimes. It does make me cheer for them because they're so brave to do this. You are so brave if you choose to do this. So your story, our stories, it could literally be that simple uh, that will change our life. It will change the lives of the people around us because this is it, our stories. Sharing our stories and being authentic human beings, it's what I would call the mindset of being creative. 
It's the lifestyle that I've pursued and I encourage you and everybody else to through these stories because this life lived this way produces energy and resiliency that empowers us with the confidence that we need to face the challenges that life throws at us. And once we start doing that over and over and it becomes a bit of a habit, then that creates momentum and that momentum is what we need to get through life. <laughs> At least I do. Uh, so anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feel free to leave a comment or ask a question. If you haven't, remember, my listeners, my favorite listeners, I love you guys so very much. You're capable of infinitely more than you give yourself credit for. So until next time, 